Father, that's what we want. We want to be sealed in our hearts with joyful anticipation for the courts that await us above. Well, we know as the psalmist writes that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And Lord, it's good to be in this place today with one another because this is, as a way of saying, this is a dress rehearsal for what awaits us. God, being together, all of us from various backgrounds and different tongues and tribes and nations and people groups in this place, united with one voice, praising a God like you. We will do this ever more, ever increasingly, with ever more joy. And Father, we thank you for this brief glimpse into what awaits us who are in Christ. We thank you, Lord, ahead of time for what you will use this service for in our lives. Through the singing of your word, Lord, we know that our hearts become more and more in tuned to the way that we ought to be in terms of our affections for you. God, you care about the way we feel. And if there are no feelings, I pray and beg you, God, that you would change that. If our feelings are askew, I pray that you would change them. If our affections for certain things of this world are more than they ought to be or less than they ought to be, Lord, would you reorient, recalibrate, and cause within us a right ordering of our loves and affections? Father, we do ask that in this time together through praying and in a minute through your word that you would be pleased to use these things to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And God, if we've showed up in this place and we do not long for one day in your presence as much as we long for things like vacations in Europe and naps in the backyard or whatever, God, rightly orient our hearts to make us enjoy vacation for your sake and to make us enjoy napping for your sake. And Father, we are so grateful that you've given us so many great gifts, the gifts of eating food, laughter, and so many blessings of sight where we get to see things that just take our breath away. We get to hear music that stops us in our tracks. We can see words put together in such poetic form or such storytelling that we are mesmerized by. God, in all these things, may we love these things well because we love them ultimately for your sake. And so, God, it's a good world you've given us. We pray that we love it accordingly. Not too much, not too little. And with that in mind, Lord, we do pray for our world. We pray for what's going on around the world but most in our minds for most of us is what's taking place in Ukraine. And we do pray, Lord, that you would intervene. God, that you would stop war. Lord, we see a lot of it. We see threatening escalation of it. We see death and destruction. We hear of even worsening things. God, sometimes we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray but we pray to a God who knows and sees it all. And so you know what best to do. Lord, you know how to stop armies in their tracks. You know how to cause tyranny to stop. 
you know how to cause bravery to increase. And Lord, we are mindful that there are countless Christians that we're seeing on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook in Ukraine, pastors and many others who are crying out for prayer, crying out for protection. And so we pray for them, Lord. Watch over your church. And may the Christians in Ukraine rise up and be so bold and so brave and so courageous as to be the ones to provide whatever is needed, help to the wounded, bandages to the bleeding, prayers for those in anguish. God, grant to them what they need. And may the church arise stronger for having gone through what they're going through. So we commit it to you, Lord, and we ask that your hand of protection be over all those involved, that you would end bloodshed because we know that's not your will. So God, we take confidence that we can pray these things knowing that you hear it. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, good morning, church. It's good to see you all this day. I will confess to you that my allergies, man, they're trying to get me. And I woke up today feeling so good, and then my contacts went in, and I thought, oh, it feels weird, but it'll be all right. And now I'm full-blown. <sighs> so if I put drops in my eyes randomly, just go about your business, and we'll continue on. Nothing to see here. Um, and not only that, but my throat. Every time I try to project my voice, I start like, it's a tickle. And I was at my son's baseball game yesterday outside, and I just think being outside for either four hours or whatever it was was just too much. So if I start hacking and stuff, just be warned. It's just allergies. Um, I want to let you know that uh, next, uh, yeah, next week we're going to start our um, new membership class, which is four weeks long. And the first three weeks of our membership class talks all about the church. Uh, what does it mean to be a part of Golden Hills? What does membership mean? What does all that entail? What is our church's vision and philosophy of ministry? Various things like that. Uh, very informative, very helpful. I encourage everyone who hasn't taken it to go ahead and take it. Um, and even if you don't intend to be a member, uh, perhaps by taking the class, you understand what membership is, and then you'll do the right thing and become a member. So, oh, that was bad, huh? You're like, I don't like that. Uh, the fourth week of the membership class, I do want to make sure you're aware of, and that is our baptism class. So many people are uh, wondering how I can get baptized, and that would be the answer. We encourage you to come on the fourth Sunday, the fourth Sunday of the month, to our baptism class, and there you'll learn about what baptism is and what it isn't, uh, about how it relates to the local church and all that kind of good stuff. And so I want to invite you to go ahead and sign up for that. And I do encourage you, if you want to be baptized but you're not interested in membership, just go all four because you'll, you'll learn some good things and it'll be very helpful. And um, the, the word of the Lord is not in vain, and so it'll be profitable in your life nonetheless. We're going to continue in this series in Hosea. We've been, uh, this is week six. We've been in this for five weeks so far. Uh, learning a great deal about the relationship of God and his people, Israel, and uh, we're learning a lot about God's heart, and that's what has been so good for me anyways in the book of Hosea is to see just God's heart unfold before our very eyes. As we read through the scriptures, we're getting greater and greater glimpses into the patience and the long-suffering of God, how he could put up with such people like this who time and time again want nothing to do with God, who don't really think God is worth their time, and yet God continues relentlessly to pursue his people. 
And for that, we should take great comfort because you and I will often let God down. We will sin against God. We will rebel against God. But we can take comfort and we can be encouraged that when we confess our sins and we lay down our rebellion and we come to him, we will find a God, a God with open arms, ready to give us forgiveness and the grace we need, though it is undeserved. So I'm glad that you're uh, here today. If you haven't been a part of this series, uh, you may hear some things for the first time. I'll try to do my best to explain things, but I'm working off of prior knowledge of what we talked about in weeks previous. Uh, my name is Phil, by the way. I'm a pastor here at Golden Hills, and I do want to welcome you. If you're here for the first time, any questions you have, please feel free to ask. Uh, we would love to help. Uh, we would love to participate and, and answer any questions you have and get you connected with our church. We'd love to do that, so let us know. So as you hopefully have made your way to the book of Hosea, let me tell you how this is going to kind of work, because this is two chapters, and uh, me preaching two chapters is never good. Uh, and we're going to break it down into three sections. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 is going to be the first section. That section is going to really entail this contrast between the way that God's love is displayed and described versus ours. God's love is permanent. It is sure. It is steadfast, where our love typically is fickle, and we don't always follow through with what we say we're going to do. And because of that bad relationship, human beings with God and how our love is always failing and fickle, it actually has societal ramifications. It impacts the way we live and how we go about our lives. And what we'll see in the, in the sections, uh, chapter six, verses eight through chapter seven, verse 13, is you're going to see a domestic issue with the nation of Israel. They got all kinds of political turmoil and whatnot, and it's just chaos and crazy. And then also there's a foreign relationship that Israel has to the other nations like Assyria and Egypt, and they're all messed up as well. And so you're going to see that play out of just how bad a nation can become when they have lost their love for the Lord supremely. And then what you'll see in verses 14 to 16 is that last little section about what do we do? How do we respond to what we've just heard, especially as people in the New Testament, especially in our day today? We are so prone, and often we just conclude that if something is off in our life, what we have to do is try harder and be better. But what we need to see in the scriptures is the more you try, oftentimes the worse it gets. And we don't need to try harder and do more. Instead, we need to know the Lord. And when we know the Lord and his grace and his mercy for us, what we come to find is in that knowledge itself and in that intimacy of knowledge with God, he supplies our every need so the very doing that we need to do, which we can on our own, we're able to because God supplies the power. It's an amazing way that this text kind of comes full circle. So we'll start in verses one through three, and we'll come all the way around to verse three at the end, and we'll look at some stuff all the way between. So I'm going to read some verses and then say some things. Sometimes I'll just read one verse at a time, sometimes one line at a time, but again, You'll see on the screen all the supplemental verses, but I'm uh, going to maintain just Hosea in your lap. So hopefully you, not hopefully, the expectation is you have your Bible in your lap, and it is the extra spiritual version, uh, <laughs> the ESV translation, and um, that way you can follow along. Um, if you have the other ones, that's okay. Verses one through three. Here's the prophet Hosea. He says, Come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. 
He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we will live before him. Let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And we'll stop there. What I want to do is go through each of these verses one by one and remind us or help us to see just who God is in his heart in this. If you recall from chapter 5, verse 15, we ended last week's uh, sermon with this appeal that God makes. It's not explicit, but it is implicit. What I mean by that is this. The Lord says, I will return to my place, which is I'm no longer going to reside with you, Israel. My presence, I'm going to withdraw from you because of your sin. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for you to do two things. I'm going to wait for you to acknowledge your guilt. And secondly, I'm going to wait for you to seek my face. Once you acknowledge your guilt and seek my face, which is another way to say repent of your sins, then you will come into my presence and I will be with you once again. And so God basically takes a step back and says, I'll wait. And so Hosea comes on the scene and he's speaking to his people, his nation, in light of what God has just said. If you return to me, acknowledging your guilt, seeking my face, then relationship will be restored. And so Hosea writes this, come, let us return to the Lord. In other words, come, come on, you guys, let's, let's go and return to the Lord. We've been sending our brains out. It's not going well for us. Let's figure it out and do what God says. Let's go back to the Lord. Who's with me? And you would imagine everyone is like, yeah, let's do it. But we'll see what happens in a second. He goes on to say the rationale behind it, why we should return to the Lord. For he has torn us. And I'm going to skip the next little dependent clause and go to the next line, which reads, he has struck us down. If we were just left with that, that would be a very negative uh, motivation to come to the Lord. Think about it like this. Come to the Lord, everyone. God has tore you up and blasted you. You want him to do it again? If you talk like that, then what ends up happening is people really are coming to God in an unhealthy state of fear. And that kind of unhealthy state of fear is never a source of lasting obedience. And so, you know, like as parents, you can parent your kids with fear or you can parent them with a good sense of fear which is more on the respect side of things, not where they're scared of you whenever you walk into the room, but where they respect your authority. And so Hosea is not looking for the people to cower in, in the sense of being scared of God, but instead to have a right appreciation of God. And so he adds the second part. Let's go back. For he has torn us ooh, so that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. So when God says this kind of thing, uh, uh, when Hosea says, look, the Lord has torn us, the Lord has struck us down, but then he adds the positive, but he will heal, but he will bind. What we are reminded of is what God is doing through his discipline. As you well know, we've talked about discipline a couple weeks now. That's God's judgment on his people. 
He doesn't totally just annihilate them. Instead, he brings discipline to them. And some of the discipline that he's doing for his people is he's causing their pursuits to become not as satisfying as they thought it would be. And there's various other disciplines. But we have to remember this. All discipline that you have ever experienced in your life always seems painful rather than pleasant. If you discipline what you eat, if you discipline like your body to work out, if you discipline yourself to wake up at a certain time, you discipline yourself, whatever it is, you know that it's a struggle. At least at first, it's a struggle. It doesn't feel good because you see the Oreos on the shelf. Like, man, I would, I, I might murder someone to have an Oreo. That, that's how I feel. And you know, it's hard. It's not pleasant at the time, but we understand that the discipline of the Lord, though it is painful at the moment, it's not pleasant. As Hebrews 12, 11 says, later on, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. When you put your nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and you actually discipline yourself and you learn to be trained by that discipline, the product or the result of that discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God is going to bring the discipline. He's going to wound. He's going to break down. But the whole point of him breaking you down is to build you back up. And the people need to learn this lesson. So they say, come man, come to the Lord. He's broken us. Yes, he's torn us, but he's done it for our good because he's going to build us up stronger and better than we were beforehand. Come on, let's come to the Lord. Verse two, there's even more motivation and an incentive. After two days, God will revive us. After the third day, he will raise us up so that we will live before him. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand uh, verse two sounds a lot like a New Testament thing. Kind of sounds like a third day raised up kind of Jesus thing. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Sometimes when we read in the New Testament that Jesus was raised on the third day, we're kind of like, well, where does it say that? All right. Hosea 6, 2. Smart guy. <laughs> but we read in, in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I fully believe that this text in Hosea 6, 2 is what Jesus is referring to. And I think as Pastor Johnny read how uh, Jesus opened the minds of his disciples for them to understand the scriptures and that all of them are really about Jesus, uh, that he died and he rose again so that forgiveness and repentance can be preached in all the world. I think Hosea is what Jesus had in mind. And so when you look at this, it's actually really beautiful. Discipline for two days and God will revive us. Discipline for three days, God will raise us up. But if you notice, he raises us up so that we may live before him. The whole point of revival and refreshment and resurrection is not you. It's about God. God revives us so we could be with him. He resurrects us so we could be with him. He refreshes us so we could be with him. God's the point. There's a saying I want you to know. It got turned into a book by, Jonathan, uh, by John Piper. It's called this. God is the gospel. God is the good news. And I need that to sink in. <laughs> 
Because so many of us believe God is good, but the real good news is how God makes you rich, healthy, mentally stable, uh, makes your marriage better, your kids more obedient. And think about this. If you come to God for something more than God, then that thing you come to God for is your God, not God. You tracking with me? So if we come to God, we're like, God, I come to you because I want this. Do you want me? Yeah. But this, that will do it for me. And when you want something in your life and in your heart, like I've been, like I prayed, if you want something other than God, more than God, you won't get either. God has to be uppermost, the supreme thing, not just intellectually. Yeah, God is number one in my life, but he has to be practically and emotionally and desirably the most important, treasurable thing in your life. And if not, no revival. And anyone who says that their church is experiencing revival where Jesus plays a supporting role, that ain't revival. Maybe revivalism, but it ain't revival. So let's listen to how Peter preached all. He preaches this sermon in front of the religious leaders of his day in Acts chapter 3. And I want you, with having what I just read in 6.1 and 6.2, Watch how Peter preaches in the things that he highlights. The God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we're witnesses. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, I don't know, Hosea, for instance, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here's how you respond. Repent, therefore. Acknowledge your guilt. Seek my face. And turn back. Or in other words, come, let us return to the Lord. So that your sins may be blotted out. Oh, that's good. But Jesus died to forgive you of your sins for more than forgiving you of your sins. There's something more he has for you. And what is it? Verse 20. You are forgiven of your sins so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Or the way 1 Peter 3.18 says it, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The whole point of you having your sins forgiven is that you may come to the Lord, that you can be in the Lord's presence. And when you are in the Lord's presence, verse 20 says, times of refreshing will come upon you. from this Jesus and from his spirit that he sends. 
Doesn't that sound kind of similar to Hosea 6, 1 and 2? Let's go back to it. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. He has shown us our sin. We are in anguish. We acknowledge our guilt, but he will forgive us. Two days, he will revive us. He'll refresh us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we can always live before him. The whole point of God coming to us is so that we would be invited into him, into his presence. And in his presence, there is refreshment. There is revival. There is resurrection. Or as Psalm 1611 says, there is the fullness of joy. And then we get to verse three. God's coming is seen as a sure thing. And in light of what, what we've just seen so far, Hosea just says, let us know the Lord, man. Let's come to the Lord. Let us know the Lord. Because if you remember what we read in chapter 4, uh, verse 2, or excuse me, verse 1, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And the reason why his people are destroyed in chapter 4, verse 6, is because they lack knowledge. And so now Hosea says, come, let's go to the Lord. Let us know him. Let us press on to know him. Because with him there is eternal life. Let's know that. His going out is as sure as the dawn. If you remember what I said last week, the people, they heard about their, God confronted them with their sin and they're like, oh yeah, we're sinners. All right. Let's, let's round up the sacrifices. Let's head on over and sacrifice some animals and get this done with. And you see that in chapter five, verse six, where they get their flocks and herds and they go to seek the Lord. They come with all their sacrifices and they come with their heartless ritual and they're going to lay down all their sacrifices. All right, big deal. All right, whatever. But when they do that, it says that they won't find the Lord. He's withdrawn from them. And so what we learn from this is we may try until we are worn out completely to work our way towards God through our good works or sometimes by just ignoring our bad works and comparing ourselves to others and figure, well, you know, on a sliding scale, I'm not as bad as this schmuck over here, so I think I'm all right. <laughs> but like I said last week, and we read in chapter four, verse four, your deeds do not permit you to return to the Lord because there is a spirit of whoredom that is within you and you do not know the Lord. So we can't come to the Lord. And even when we try to come to the Lord, everything we bring to the Lord, he doesn't accept because it's not going to work. It's not good enough. So we are in a desperate situation where we need God to come to us since we can't go to him. And lo and behold, his going out to us is as sure as the dawn. I don't think any of us went to bed last night fretting over, man, I hope the sun rises tomorrow. We may have thought that like, hey, I may, not, I may wake up in the arms of Jesus tomorrow, but we don't necessarily think like, I hope the sun rises tomorrow. We kind of like bank on that. You know what I mean? We just kind of get that. And as sure as the dawn is tomorrow morning, God is revealing himself as the God who will show up. You can depend on him. And then it goes on to say this, when God comes, he will come to us 
as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now, we're living in close to springtime. It, it's technically winter, but it's spring. It's one reason why I'll probably never move out of California. And what I love about this season is how beautiful it becomes. All the hills around here are green. We have to change our name from Golden Hills to Green Hills, you know, just for a season. I'm just kidding. We'll never do that. But anyways, it's very beautiful. And something that my mom used to say all the time, which I'll never forget, is this. April showers bring May flowers. You heard this before? No? All right. I used to hate that saying. And the reason why is because I played baseball. And it was a spring sport. And so when the April showers came, I didn't get to play baseball. So I'm like, forget the Mayflowers. Like, we want dry weather so I can play baseball. But we must not neglect the reality that one of the reasons why our hills are so green and the, the blossoming flowers are on the trees are the way they are as you drive around town right now is because we had so much rain. And because of that so much rain, the deep green of our hills, we see it and we're like, and God's trying to paint this picture for you and I saying, I need you to understand that as the spring rains come and the result is green, blossoming, blooming, beauty. So I come to you as sure as the dawn flowing with showers like the spring rains because I intend to produce beauty and life and vitality where there was only this parched and dry and weary land. Which is one reason why we have this kind of image here, springing out of this dry, cracked land that is desperate for water, comes the presence of the Lord who nourishes us by his presence and brings about such bounty and fruitfulness that we all want to be in that garden. We all want to frolic through the great vomits. And so you would think, having heard all of that, that the people would probably be like, yeah, Let's go to the Lord, man. Let's go to the Lord. He is going to revive us. The Lord will bind us up. He'll heal us. He's going to restore us. Oh, man, let's go to the Lord. He's going to produce fruit in us. This will be great. And then we read this, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And so here's this contrast. God's love is sure as the dawn. You can bank on it. And then here's human love, which is described as morning clouds and the dew that goes away early. We live in the Bay Area, and so we know this understanding of fog. And you and I understand, like I, when I was a kid, everybody knows you don't go to the beach in Northern California in the summer. That's silly. Like Mark Twain said, I think it was, the coldest day I ever had was a summer in San Francisco. And anyways, so you don't go to the beach. So people who, who are, you know, I lived here my whole life. I went to school in Southern California, but I ignore that. I lived here my whole life. And uh, I love Northern California. And everybody knows if you want to go to the beach, if you want to go to Stinson Beach and you want to have a beach experience where it's warm and you can actually get in the water, you go in September or October. Everybody knows that. And if you just found that out, you better write it down. <laughs> that was free. And so I used to check the weather report when I got my driver's license because I used to drive to Stinson Beach quite a bit to go surfing and stuff. But I would look at the weather report and every single day, here's what it would say when I wanted to go surfing. Fog in the morning, blue skies around noon. Almost every time. 
And I knew that the fog would burn off by noon. So we would get there early to set everything up, and then we'd wait around with our sweatshirts on, and next thing you know, it's 80 degrees. And you're like, how'd that happen? It's because we know that the, that the fog is going to burn off. It's going to go away. Or this week, if, if you notice around our neighborhoods and stuff, there was a lot of dew on the grass. There's a lot of frozen stuff in the morning. But if you notice, by the afternoon, it was all gone. And so what God is saying is, I'm coming to you as sure as the dawn. I'm going to shower you like the spring rains, which brings beauty and vitality and life. And how do you respond? Your love towards me is like the dew in the morning that goes away by the afternoon. Your love for me is like the fog in the morning in San Francisco is gone by the afternoon. It's not sustainable. You don't perpetuate it. It's just here for a little while. Oh God, I love you so much. And then by the afternoon, you forgot, and you're just going about your business, sending your brains out. So God says, what am I supposed to do with this? And in today's world, you and I kind of understand that. I mean, we feel closest to God when we're here at church on Sunday morning, but sometimes by Sunday afternoon, we've forgotten everything we heard. It's because we are like dew. We are like the morning clouds. You and I are fickle in our love. Not only towards God, but each other. So what God does is verse five, he, therefore he says, I have hewn them by the prophets. That word hewn there is like when you take a tree and you, you fell a tree, there it is, and you have to scrape the bark off and you have to get to that good wood in order to use that wood as like a beam in a house or something like that. And uh, people hewn wood to make rustic tables nowadays, if you ever watch you know, home improvement things. Everyone's putting in faux beams and rustic beams in their house, in their track homes. But anyways, everyone wants to be joining gains. And, uh, and so they have this hewn wood. And, and what, what God is saying is like, you're like a tree that I'm going to knock down and then I'm going to hewn. I'm going to carve off the bark. I'm going to get rid of all the gnarly wood and I'm going to get to the heartwood that's presentable. And he's going to do that through the prophets. And how he does that through the prophets is this. He has slain them. He has slain the people by the words of my mouth, God says. And my judgment goes forth as the light. So the prophets are men of old who, the best way to think of Old Testament prophets are not fortune tellers. That's ridiculous. Prophets of Old Testament are best understood as covenant enforcers. That's why every prophet, when you read them, they're always talking about the covenant. They're talking about you broke the covenant. Get back in covenant. And so the prophets would preach, and they would preach and preach. You've broken the covenant. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to be restored to a right relationship with God. Keep the covenant. Keep the covenant. And so when they preached these words of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you need to repent and return to God, God is slaying them by his words. He's ripping them open. He's hewning their hearts and getting off all the rough patches and all the gnarl, and he's trying to get to that presentable heartwood. This reminds us of what God talks, or tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah is a great prophet. He's called the weeping prophet. And the Lord put his hand and touched Jeremiah's mouth. And so he says to Jeremiah, behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Look at the negative. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. And then we go to the positive. To build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? 
And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, oh, you see well, for I, have, for I am watching over my word to perform it. In other words, God puts his word into Jeremiah's mouth and says, Jeremiah, go preach my word. And when you preach my word, I'm going to use it to do what I want to do. In other words, I will watch over my word to perform what I say I will perform. What a beautiful thing when you hear the preached word of God. That's why you need more of this and less of me, right? We need the Bible because through it, oh, God begins to hew our hearts. Making us presentable. And he does that through his word. And then in verse six, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. My people, you keep thinking that all I want is heartless ritual. Yes, I gave you a law, but you remember the sequence from week one and week two. God redeems you, then God gives you a new identity, and then he commands you to go and act out that identity. But the people are beginning to do reverse order. They're like, oh, well, we got to do this stuff. I guess let's do the stuff so we can get right with God so that way he'll redeem us and be okay with us. No. Redemption. And then God, in restoration of you, gives you a new identity and then says, now go and live out that identity. Got to get the sequence right. So God says, I desire steadfast love. What I want first is I want you to love me. And then the sacrifice stuff will come later. But you have reversed the order and you think all I want is sacrifice and I don't want your heart. I want your heart. Or you think that all I want is burnt offerings, but no, I want knowledge of me. I want you to know me. I don't want you to just have intellectual assent of me. I want you to know me. And one of the sure signs that you know the Lord is not only that you can speak intelligibly about the Lord, but you also are connected to the Lord in a, a, a very personal way. And it's often reflected in how you feel towards the Lord. And sometimes we negate emotions when God wants both. Think rightly and feel rightly. And the people don't want that. This is what God desires, steadfast love and knowledge of him. And this is a good text for us to remember. Like, what does that mean exactly? And I think for us, the best thing to do is to go to Jesus because he quotes this text a couple times. And let's look at how he uses this text. So Jesus passes from where he was at. He sees a man named Matthew, also called Levi, and he's sitting at his tax booth. He calls him, says, follow me. And so Matthew follows him. And Jesus is reclining at table in Matthew's house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That word mercy there is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word has said, which means steadfast love, which is what we find in Hosea 6. 
So in other words, Jesus says, you need to understand that I, God of the universe, desire steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus trying to communicate from Hosea? He's trying to communicate that you can obey the law in as many ways as you could possibly understand, and your heart can still be far away from God. No amount of law keeping and no amount of believing that you're righteous because of the way you act or don't act is ever going to be the definitive answer to the condition of your heart. In fact, what Jesus is saying is God so desperately wants your heart that the evidence of the condition of your heart is going to be found in how you treat each other. If you look down your nose at people and treat them harshly, unlovingly, and you think you're superior to them in one way or the other, and you will not associate with them because you think you're so superior, your heart is so far from God, evidenced by the way you treat others, that even if you obey God in every possible way that you can think of, God still would reject you. Because God wants your heart. Now, this is huge. This is huge. Heartless, ritualistic obedience brings no glory to God. And therefore, God says, no, 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 I want steadfast love. Your sacrifices are important, but I don't want that. Sorry, somebody is trying to interrupt my iPad. Knock it off, whoever. (laughs) Where was I? Let's keep going. Verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant because they dealt faithlessly with me. In other words, Jose is reminding us, what did Adam and Eve do? They transgressed the covenant. And what was the covenant of Adam and Eve? It was simply this. Here's my word. Hear it. Obey it. Trust me. And they didn't. And likewise, now the people are paying dearly for it. So we're going to go pretty quickly through the next section. I know it's a lot of verses, but I'm going to kind of summarize some stuff because they they say some things in there which are repeated. What we're going to see is how this lovelessness towards God actually affects the domestic and the foreign relationships of Israel. Internally, man, their government is all kinds of messed up, and foreign relations are messed up too, and we'll see that. So we'll start in just kind of this general condition of Israel, and you can see how defiled it is. We start in verse 8. Gilead is a city of evildoers. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but Gilead was a city that was really well known for having prophets come out of the city. It's, so people are like, man, if you came from Gilead, it's because you're, like, you're in a godly city, and there's godly men that came out of Gilead. Well, now all of a sudden, the reputation of Gilead is that it's a city of evildoers. It's tracked with blood. And it's not what you would expect. I remember this story uh, reading um, from Martin Luther, when he was a Roman uh, Catholic priest, he, monk, he made a trip to Rome and he thought this was going to be the greatest thing ever. Cause he was like, I'm going to go to the place where St. Peter's Basilica is. I'm going to go there. It's going to be the place where God resides on earth. It's going to be amazing. So when he showed up, he was actually very distraught because he had seen more prostitution, drunkenness, 
sexual escapades in Rome than he ever saw his entire life. So he was so heartbroken that, could this be Rome? Are you kidding me? What happened to this great place where the church was so influential? And so he was heartbroken. Well, that's the same kind of thing that's happened in Gilead. What's happened to this place? It used to be a place where godly men were uh, residing and where good things were happening. And now it's just full of blood. And not only that, but in verse 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Now, once again, that may not mean much to you, but Shechem was one of the two cities in which the people would come to worship. And the priests were the one who helped the people worship. So think about it like this. If I say, hey, Golden Hills, we're going to meet together on, I don't know, Tuesday night at uh, 9 p.m. We want everyone to come. But if you come, can you please only, only, only drive down Lone Tree from wherever you come? Just come down Lone Tree. And then me and my goons, we, we carjack everyone on Lone Tree as you're coming to the church. And you're like, is that Pastor Phil? And I'm like, pistol whip you and just take your stuff. <laughs> That's what's happening. People are going to worship the Lord in Shechem, and instead, their very own priests are just shanking them and taking all their stuff. You're like, how is this happening? Are you kidding me? And so in the house of Israel, God says, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel's defiled. Now, this is just insane. What happened is uh, it used to be associated, like worship of God used to be associated with a little town called Bethel, Beth-el, which means house of God. And now all of a sudden, God is saying, this is something which is horrible that's happening in Israel. It's no longer Beth-el, the house of God. It's now a brothel, the house of whoredom. And just imagine such a thing. If a church, well-known church, sells its building and becomes a brothel. What? But that's just what's happening. And so they become so defiled, so defiled, in fact, what you see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7 is a considerable domestic turmoil which breaks out. It's crazy. Now, we don't have enough time to go through all of it, so let me, let me just kind of work through it. God says, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, like right when I'm on the verge of healing them, then the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. So here's Israel kind of like, okay, okay. So God, all right. So he wants us to return to him. All right, let's do that. And so they begin to maybe, you know, do some things that are right. Their love towards the Lord is like the dew of the morning. It quickly evaporates. And so right when God's like, good job, and he's about to heal them, then all of a sudden the people go, remember the other stuff? Let's go. And they run to their sin right at the verge when God was about to heal them. And then he says, they forget that I know they're evil. They forget that all their sin is right before me. The Lord knows what's going on. He does not miss anything. He sees it all. But they thought, nah, he doesn't see. It's no big deal. And because of this, what happens is Israel then falls into all kinds of political intrigue and all kinds of assassinations. Let me give you a quick history lesson. 
I'm going to say some names. There's a guy named Zechariah who's the king. He reigns for six months, and the reason why he only reigns for six months is a dude named Shalom kills him and reigns in his place. Okay. Then all of a sudden, um, Shalom, uh, he reigns, but only for a month. <laughs> why is that? Well, because this guy, Menahem, he comes and kills him and takes over. So he reigns for 10 years, but during his reign, there's a guy named Pul, P-U-L, who's the king of Assyria, comes into Israel and demands that he gets money or else he's going to attack. And so Menahem, he's like, eh, I don't want to fight this war or whatever. Give him some money. So they give him some money. And Pul goes, well, that's an easy way to make money. We'll be back. And Menahem's like, uh, who cares? I'll probably be dead by the time you come back. So Pekahiah, his son, reigns after him. He only reigns for two years. And the reason why he only reigns for two years is a bunch of people conspired and they killed him. And so a guy named Pekah, who was the captain of his army, who's the one who was the brainchild behind this, begins to reign. He reigns for 20 years, which is pretty good. Except for during that reign, a guy named Tiglath Pilasar, who's from uh, Syria in the north, attacks Israel and says, give me my money. And he's like, I'm not giving you no money. He's like, bet me. And so he attacks Israel, uh, Samaria, the capital, and besieged it for three years until eventually he conquered it and dragged the people off in 720 BC. And then what you read is all kinds of things about why this happened. Like, why did the Lord abandon his people? And you read it in 2 Kings chapter 17, which I won't read because it's really long, but I give you homework. But in the end, what, what it basically comes down to is this. Verse 12 of 2 Kings 17, the people served idols of which the Lord said, do not do this. And the Lord warned the people, verse 13, through the prophets, verse 14, but they would not listen. Verse 15, they went after false idols and they became false. Therefore, verse 18, the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight because of idolatry. All that to say, God came time and time again through the prophets. You better repent. You better repent. They're like, nah, I'm good. And then God says, all right, then you're done. And why did this happen? Because of idolatry, because they did not worship God supremely. And so what you see is intrigue and assassination and all kinds of evil. So now let's jump to verse three through seven real quick. By the people's evil, by their assassinations and by their murders on the highway and their robbery, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. You heard the statement of when Nero uh, was fiddling while Rome burned? It's when political leaders are watching their followers wreak havoc and they're going, look at this, this is awesome. I want you to think of January 6th. This is, I'm not nuts. Somebody else is nuts, not me. They're all adulterers. They're like heated ovens whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. And then on the day of the great king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. They stretch out their hands with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. 
All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. So what you have is these rulers, and all these people are baking their hearts in the heat of passionate sin. You and I preheat our ovens, and then once it's preheated and the bell goes off, then we put in our cookies. Well, their hearts preheat and heat and heat. Let's sin, let's sin, let's sin. And then the morning comes and they're like, it's go time. And assassinations and all kind of ungodliness then unfold. So that's just domestically what's happening. Turmoil, one king after another, murder, intrigue, uh, conspiracies to murder, all kinds of stuff. And then we go to verses 8 through 13. And this is about the foreign relations. This is pretty interesting. It says, Ephraim makes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Ephraim, the northern country, they mix with the people, which means not just ethnically. It's, it's, it's not like in the south in the United States where they use this verse as a justification to outlaw interracial marriage. This has to do with worship. And as you know, Solomon married many foreign wives. And what happened to him? He began to worship their gods. That's what happens. And so that's what God's concerned with is, is false worship. And so the people begin to falsely worship these other gods. They become like a cake, not turned. Now imagine this for, for me with a second. You, you, you make pancakes, you pour the batter on the griddle, and you just let it cook for three minutes and you never flip it. What happens? One side is burnt while the other side is all doughy and nasty. None of us want to eat pancakes like that. Likewise, God's saying, you're like a pancake burned on one side, doughy on the other. I'm throwing it out. I don't like it. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not, verse 9. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. In other words, day after day, you're getting older and older, and your strength is getting weaker and weaker, and you don't even recognize it. You're just going about your business, not paying attention. So what God is saying is, look, people. I desire for you to be distinct. I've desired to you to be a holy nation. I desired for you to be unique among all the peoples of the world. God indeed said this. If you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Like there's a whole world of people, but you will be my treasured possession. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God desires his people to be distinct. Everyone should know who is God's people and who isn't. And what is true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. You're a chosen race, church. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Hosea 1. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy, Hosea 1. And so, beloved... I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, as people who live on planet Earth with no permanent home here, your primary identity is not a Californian or an American. Your primary identity is I am God's. I am a citizen of his nation. I am a citizen of his kingdom. And so we should view ourselves as sojourners or exiles. That is like, oh, we're just passing through. This is not my permanent home. And while we're just passing through, 
We should abstain from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our soul. We need to keep our conduct among the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak evil against us, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So people can say, man, look at these Christians. They're horrible. And then all of a sudden they see the way we live and they go, oh man, they're better than we are. What do you do about that? It's a good apologetic. And so I would encourage you, church, God has asked you to be distinct and embrace it. Let me say it differently. Be weird. It's okay. Because the less the church is distinct, the less the church has to offer the world. If the world and the church look identical, then what in the world do we have to offer it? So how we can do that best is by thinking how God intends for his people to be weird, live honorably, speak truth, love, forgive, give mercy. Because the one thing I notice about our world today, there's a lack of forgiveness and everyone is desperate for redemption, but they don't know where to find it. And so we should be weird. Here's how you can be redeemed. And then we go on in verse 11. We're going to see that the people become bird brain. You ever heard that phrase? You're a bird brain. That's where it comes from. Hosea 7:11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Like <laughs> you bird brain. You're so dumb. What are you doing? Because remember, the Lord has wounded. And then if you look in chapter 5, verse 13, when Ephraim and Judah saw their sickness and their wound, they went to Assyria and they said to the and they sent to the great king. But here's what God says: uh, no, he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. So here you are feeling the discipline of the Lord, and instead of running to the Lord to be healed, instead you're saying, I, I feel pain. I'm going to run to my idols. I'm going to run to power. I'm going to run to control. I'm going to run to comfort. I'm going to run to safety because that will make me feel better. You bird brain. <laughs> That's senseless. What are you doing? No, 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 no. Don't do that. And so Israel has committed themselves to the false gods, which are so prevalent here. And if you know, like we've shared in the last, uh, the first three weeks of this um, series, Israel was guilty of worshiping foreign gods, but they were also guilty of idolatry of military power. They thought, I mean, our military is strong. What are people going to do to us? And they worshiped it. They worshiped worldly relevance. Let's be like the other nations, their wealth and comfort and security. And we would do well to remember what Jonah says to us. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If we decide that we're going to make sure that our hearts are pursuing, whether it's politics or money or fame or safety, but if we're going to make that the chief concern of our lives, we can kiss steadfast love goodbye because God will have no rivals. He wants all of you, your whole heart. And so if we want to dissect what's an idol in our heart, I've said this before. Here's how a great way to do it. Number one is a positive thing. 
and you can say in your life, all right, if I just had blank, then I would feel like my life is worth living and I would have meaning and significance. Whatever that thing is that you would fill in the blank, that's probably your idol. That's the thing you long for more, most. That's the thing you hope for most. Let me put it negatively. If you look at your life and you begin to look at all that you have and all that you do and all that kind of stuff, and if you can say this, if blank, whatever it is, was taken from me, I don't think I would have any reason to wake up in the morning and keep going through life. I don't know who I would be anymore. I don't know what to do. Now you found your idol. Because if we wake up, and I've heard this from people, if we wake up in the morning and we say something like, man, if I lose my job, like, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Or I've heard this about people in ministry, which is the oddest thing in the world. It's like, well, if, if I can't serve in kids' ministry anymore, then, like, who am I? Or if I can't serve in the worship band or sing in the choir anymore, then, then who am I? If I, if I can't serve in short-term missions trips, then who am I? Like, I don't know meaning in life. I don't know what to do. And what we do is we make a good thing an ultimate thing. And we should never worship the worship. And so if we're going to worship these false things, we know, we have to know that you give up steadfast love. And so here's the people's response. Right now, we should be asking ourselves this question. How will we respond sitting here? If I identify idols in my heart where God is not uppermost in my heart, what do I do? In our culture today, the things that we typically prescribe for each other is try harder. Do better. Figure it out. And so you're like, man, I just feel, oof. That's not encouraging, by the way, to be, just be told, all right, you got some things to work. You need to figure it out. You need to just buck up. You just need to do better. What's wrong with you? As I make fun of like different men's ministries over the years that I've been to where you're at the men's rally and you're like, Jesus is everything. Yeah, and you're like, all right, man, you better do better. I better not see you next year in the same spot. I'm like, what? He's gonna fight me? It's crazy. That's not what we should do. Look at what the people respond, how they respond. God says, they don't cry to me from their heart. They wail upon their beds. So, so there's sorrow. You see sorrow there, right? They're wailing on their beds. But for grain and wine, they're gashing themselves. So yes, they're in anguish. They're hurting. I'm in pain. But what are they in pain for? For God? God, I'm sorry I sinned against you. I want to restore a right relationship with you. No. They're sitting in their beds, and they are wailing because all they want is their grain and wine. You know, the stuff that God took away from them in the beginning. And so sometimes, I, I remember this. I, I, you guys know the story of me playing baseball. It became an idol to me, and the Lord took it away through an injury. And I'm at Hume Lake Christian Camp, and I get a call from the San Francisco Giants asking me if I wanted to come for a workout, and if everything went well, they would sign me. And I'm like, yes! But I got the, <laughs> I got the call three weeks later because there's no service at Hume, and so I missed the opportunity. So I'm sitting in a Craig and Auto Parts parking lot on Blackstone in Fresno, and I'm on the phone going, I'll run for you in the parking lot. I'll take batting practice anywhere. And they're like, it's too late. We already signed people. We already filled our roster. <gasps> 
And I remember going into the woods at, at, Hume, at Hume Lake, and I'm like, oh, all I want is baseball. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> you think I didn't know that? That's why you don't get it. You don't get baseball, because that's all you want. I need to be all that you want. And so, <laughs> no baseball for Phil. That's all the people were doing, and they were gashing themselves, which means they were, they were practicing these pagan rituals. This is the prophets of Baal. They go to this uh, hill, Mount Carmel, and they're fighting against Elijah, the prophet Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal. They're like, all right, whichever God is real, we're going to build an altar, and they're going to answer this prayer with fire. And you probably remember the story, 1 Kings 17 18. They go up there, the prophets of Baal are running around this altar calling for their false god to answer their cry. And so Elijah begins to mock them, saying, you should cry aloud, for he is a god. It's dripping with sarcasm, by the way. Oh, either he is musing, which means, oh, maybe he's in deep thought writing you know, profound poetry, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or maybe he, you know, fell asleep, or and he must be awakened. And so the prophets of Baal, they cried louder and louder. They were cutting themselves as, after their custom with swords and lances. So here's the people of Israel lying on their beds, crying because of God's discipline, and they're cutting themselves and gashing themselves, worshiping Yahweh by worshiping through false worship. Do you see that? And so God's shocked by this. Although I trained you and strengthened your arms, you devise evil against me. And when the people do return, verse 16, they return, but not upward or not towards the most high. So Hosea says, come, let's return to the Lord. And they're like, okay, we'll return to the Lord, but they don't return to God. They're like a treacherous bow. If you ever played, ar if you ever shot archery and you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> oh. and you're like, hopefully no one saw me do that. It's like a treacherous bow. You just fall flat on your face. You're off target. You try to return to God, but you can't return to God. You're like a treacherous bow. You don't even know what you're doing. You're way off course. And because of this, the princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue, their pride. And so what's happening here is basically this. The people feel grief for their sin, but it's not a godly grief. It's a worldly grief. So here's the last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through godly grief and worldly grief. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. The church in Corinth was celebrating that a man was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And Paul writes a letter and says, this can't happen in the church. Kick that man out of the church. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, Paul says, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. But as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. But I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss to us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I want to walk you through some indicators of worldly grief, godly grief real quickly. Here it is. From this text, but also from just other texts we don't have time for. Worldly grief is often indicated by an embarrassment when you're caught, 
And it's the idea that you're not necessarily grieved that you sinned, you're grieved that other people know about your sin. Does that make sense? And so you're like, oh no, what are people gonna think about me now? Oh no. Godly grief would say, oh, I can't believe I've sinned in that way. How in the world could I have done that? What am I thinking, doing, saying? And you feel broken because of it. Worldly grief will oftentimes be evident in demanding of others. So a person will understand that they're guilty of sin and instead of you know, healthily dealing with it, instead they'll find the people around them who know about it and they go, you better forgive me. Jesus forgave the adulterous woman, you need to forgive me. Or where's the grace, bro? Whoa, from a person in your position who sinned the way you have, I don't know that you're at any position to be demanding anything. I remember sitting at a Starbucks one time with a person who grievously sinned against me and various people, hurting hundreds of people, and I remember him demanding, no, 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 your heart's not right. You need to forgive me. I'm like, you just caused havoc three weeks ago, and here you are demanding? Godly grief instead would be something like this. I now understand the pain I've caused you, and I'm sorry. And I know the pain that I've caused God because of my sin, and I'm sorry. You see, worldly grief only cares about our personal pain. I don't like that you don't like me right now. I don't like that you have bad thoughts of me, so you better forgive me so I feel better about myself, okay? where godly grief says, regardless of how I feel, my main concern is how God feels towards my sin and how you feel towards it, and I'm deeply sorry. Big difference, you see it? Big difference. Worldly grief is fixated on consequences rather than reconciliation. Here's an example. Someone might say, I hope this sin doesn't ruin my career. Or, man, I really hope, I hope people will learn to trust me again. Or, man, I really hope this doesn't cost me clients, because if I lose the business, I don't, I don't know how to recover. Godly grief will be chiefly concerned with reconciliation, not repercussions. Godly grief will say, forget the business. I gotta get right with God and those who I sinned against. I gotta do that first and foremost. So these people are gonna come to God with a half-hearted religious, religious ritual and God will not accept it because God demands full-hearted repentance. He wants your whole heart, not half-heartedness, not going through the motions. And now we go finally Isaiah 6, 3, here is what we should do. Know the Lord. Know that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and will give mercy and grace to all who call to him. Know that the Lord is patient with you and the Lord has wide open arms and is inviting you into himself. Know that the Lord is the one who forgives. Know that the Lord is the one who revives. Know that the Lord is the one who refreshes. Know that the Lord is the one who sees us as weary sinners and says, come, I will give you rest. Know me. 
know me. And so what shall we do? Let's know the Lord. And together, let's remind each other of who God is. Let's remind each other that God is our true hope. God is our source of lasting joy. God is our comfort. God is our resting place. God is our confidence. God is our treasure. God is our reward. God is as sure as the dawn, and God is our spring rains upon the dry hearts. God is the one who will come to us in steadfast love and lift us up and refresh refresh us in himself. God is the one who says, come, come, and I will give you rest. So, Father, we ask that you would indeed give us this rest. God, that you would indeed refresh us, revive us, renew us. In Jesus Christ, Lord, we know, we know that we are forgiven. We know that his shed blood is what purifies us from sin. We know that you sent him to us to rescue us from sin. We know, Lord, that you have done these things because you love us. And so as we close this service and singing this song, about the fountain filled with blood where we find our hope and forgiveness and cleansing. I pray, Lord, you would put it into our heart, the right affections, that we may sing it as we ought. And may the words of this song radiate into our lives and change us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.